Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we're continuing our series in the Psalms of Ascent with James Jordan, and here Jordan's going to be discussing Psalm 122, and we have included the Theopolis chant setting for this at the end of the talk. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 122. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing, at present tense, our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, more literally the tribes of Yah, a testimony for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. In the second stanza, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, may they prosper who love you, may peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here at last, in the song of the songs of ascents, the pilgrims have reached the city. They leave, the most extreme case, from a foreign land where they are constantly oppressed and lied about and attacked by the enemies of God's kingdom. They dwell far north in Asia in Meshach, they dwell far to the southeast in Kedar with the Ishmaelites whose hands are against every man. And even though they're peaceable and they desire to be for peace, yet those they live around are always for war. They're contentious and they will not let things slide. They will not overlook anything. They will always fight every little thing out to the last inch. So the man sets out on his journey. Now Along the way, you face highway robbers, and you might worry about the farm or the land that you've left behind. And yet, he directs his eyes toward God's holy mountain, where he's going, where God's help is, where God's footstool is, where the throne of God is, and where he can look up from that footstool right up into the face of God. And he knows that God will protect him from the sun that smites by day, from robbers and others who might attack under the government of the moon by night, In fact, that God would protect him against all evil and guard him always. And now finally arrives at Jerusalem. And I've never been there. But I was talking to a friend who had been to the so-called Holy Land, to Palestine, a couple of years ago. And like most of us, I think, who don't have any money and who never expect to go, he was always kind of putting down the reports that people bring back about how wonderful it is to go over there and to walk where Jesus walked and to talk where Jesus talked, and all the other things that people talk about when they go to the Holy Land. And he figured that, well, this trip was paid for by someone else, and it'll be interesting to see all these different places, but it isn't going to really mean a whole lot to me, because after all, I mean, you've seen a hill, you've seen a hill, you've seen a ruin, you've seen a ruin. It's the Bible that counts. Well, he would still say it's the Bible that counts, but he was very sold on the idea of taking trips over there and looking around. He says it really hits you, the geography of the place, how small everything is and how near everything is, and how high Jerusalem is, and just a few minutes away, you're way down below sea level in other areas around. 
and how steep it is and how you get up in the morning in Jerusalem and you've got to wear a big coat and you get in the car and drive a half an hour and you're just taking everything off because it's so hot. All these differences, all this variation in the land. How many stones are there? A land whose stones are like iron. It's very impressive. And he says it's impressive to come upon Jerusalem because you really do go up and you really do kind of come around and all of a sudden, blam, there's the city there. It's up high and you can see it from below. And you almost feel impelled to hurry up and get there. Now, that's the way the psalmist feels when they finally get there. Not only do they have all kinds of wonderful memories and associations about going to Jerusalem because they did it ever since they were little kids and they're going to see all their friends there, but it's very beautiful. And so now, three times a year, all the men are going to go up to Jerusalem and once a year, all the families are going to go. And so the man says that he was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. It's time for the feast of Passover. It's time for the feast of weeks. It's time for the feast of tabernacles. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Now the house of the Lord was the tabernacle which was located in the city and then later on the temple was located there after David took the city and began to reorganize it. David didn't build the temple, but even while David was there and David wrote this, the tabernacle was located there. And that's where they would go, where God's throne was. And now they're in the city at last. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now he describes the city. Jerusalem, says it again, Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of Yah. Now ordinarily the word for Lord in your Bible, or Jehovah, is the word Yahweh, which we call in theology the tetragrammaton, because it has four grammas or letters. Tetra means four and gramma means letter, roughly. Tetragrammaton is J-H-V-H, Jehovah, or Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Yahweh. All these are possible ways to say it. All we have is the consonants. But this time it's only Yah. It's just the first two letters, J-H, Jeho, or Yah. That's all you actually have. And this is a name for God that's not used very often. It's used in Exodus 15, right at the beginning, when... Moses starts the Song of Moses. I'm going to read that to you. Exodus 15, verse 2, Yah is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Now, throughout the rest of the song, the word Yahweh is used, the normal word. And yet here, right at the beginning, this word is used in association with strength and praise and salvation. And then in chapter 17, verse 16 of Exodus because the hand of Amalek is against Yah, then Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. It is against God and his people. And so, even though this word is used very rarely, the fact that it is used here points up this particular meaning of being the defender of God's people and the one who is attacked. So here this man who is worried all the way along now is using the word which is only used a few times in the Bible and which can therefore highlight the idea of God being strength, the tribes of Yahweh. The city that is compact together is a unity, and yet here is a diversity, many tribes together in one unity. And going up there three times a year is an ordinance for Israel, a witness or a testimony to Israel. And why do they go? They go to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, why do they give thanks there? 
because at that place thrones were set up for judgment. There are several thrones. There's the big throne of David, the final court of appeal, and then there are lesser thrones that David set up. David organized the kingdom. He took some of the Levites and made them into judges on matters pertaining to the Lord, religious matters, church courts. And he took others and made them officers in matters pertaining to the king, civil matters. And you can read all about that in Chronicles. It's got long lists of all the people who did this and the people who were singers and gatekeepers and those that were judges in the church and those that were judges in the state and all the rest. They're all either mentioned how many of them there were or even listed by name. So there were many thrones set up there for judgment and they were under the house of David, the thrones of the house of David. Now, what does it mean here? Let's just, with that under our belt, Look at the statement, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. What does that mean? Does it mean that when you looked at Jerusalem, and it's been newly built by David, David's been building on it, you see, and this is a psalm of David. You looked at it and it was just like one great big building. Everything was connected to everything else. There weren't any holes between the houses, there weren't any trees or any parks or anything, just one big like you think of a mountain or a pyramid with many parts. Or does it mean something a little bit more subtle than that? I think it does. The word that's used for compact together here is not used very often in the Bible. And when you come across a word that's not used very much, sometimes it's significant, sometimes it isn't. We don't get our theology from word studies. We get our theology from what the Bible actually says using words. And yet the way a word is used is sometimes indicative of what is being said. And this word, compact together, is the word that's used when they built the tabernacle and they took the various curtains and put them together. They linked them together. Now let's look at the tabernacle. On this chalkboard here, we have the tabernacle. And because it was a tent, which was portable, you had curtains. You didn't have a wall. You had posts stuck in the ground, and then you had posts that ran sideways along the side, halfway up, up at the top, and up at the bottom. And you had curtains that had rings, and they were hung like a shower curtain around the tabernacle. And on the sides, they were linked together, like this. Well, maybe not like that, but they were linked together, each curtain, so that they would form a wall. You got a picture of that? The word that's used for linking these things together and forming an architectural structure is this word compact together. Now, it's very interesting how else that word is used because in Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel sees the glory cloud and sees the four cherubim around the throne of God, remember, and they had four heads each and they had wheels that looked like this, a wheel going this way and a wheel going that way that were stuck together so the chariot could go this way or that way. And remember that each one of them had four wings, and the wings were stuck out like this. You have four cherubim. One, two, three, four. And the wings were stuck out like this and then also like that. Now this wing touches the wing of the cherubim who's right here. Their wings touch. And the word that's used for the touching of the wings to form this architectural structure is the word that's used here, compact together. Now, think back to something that we've talked about in this church a lot, that the various houses in the Bible are all analogous to each other. 
the book of Ezekiel, for instance. Starts off with Ezekiel looking into heaven, and he sees the throne of God, and around the throne of God he sees this structure made up of angels. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, that has translated itself into the temple that's described in chapters 40 through 48, where everything is compact together. The architectural model in heaven, the kingdom of heaven, has now come to the earth and become a kingdom on the earth. Sometimes the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, meaning it's his kingdom. Sometimes it talks about the kingdom of heaven, meaning the organized structure of things in heaven. And that structure will come to earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Similarly, in the book of Revelation, in the first chapter you have a description of Jesus Christ. He's described like the high priest with some variations. But there are all these various facets to how he is described and how he looks. At the end of the book of Revelation, when the city of God is described, it's described the same way. You can take Revelation 1 and Revelation 21 and 22 and find all kinds of parallels. Because Jesus has now reproduced himself in his church. And the church now is conformed to the image of Christ. Now this imaging is used throughout the Bible. And so what we are led to here is that the heavenly throne of God surrounded by this architectural structure of cherubim is reproduced in the tabernacle where the same word is used for compacting it together. And now the city of Jerusalem, not just the house of God in particular, but expanding out now to the city, the city itself is said to be compact together, structured out with all the wings touching other wings. Now that implies something further because this is also the word that's used when men covenant together to do something. It's not used very often, but in Genesis 14 where the four kings compacted together to fight against the five kings, that's the word that's used, compact together. So now let's take another point. Imagine that the entire church is organized around the throne of God and everybody's holding hands. That would be parallel. Now, in Ezekiel, in the temple that's described there, what do you have on all the walls? Palm trees and cherubim on all the walls, all organized around the throne of God. So now, if you learn to think in this Hebrew analogical way, you begin to catch something that's being said here. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together means that it's all structured architecturally around the throne of God. Not only are the buildings structured that way, not literally, but you can see it. It's all one unified structure. But also the people that are in the kingdom are also like a city structured together. The New Testament temple is what? It's us. It's the people. The people have become the temple. And our structure around the throne of God and how peaceful we are and how much covenant solidarity we have in our organization around the throne of God. I point to this because if there were bread and wine here, then that would be the sacramental presence of Christ. And that would be the earthly symbol of the structure. Now we begin to see why the psalmist moves on to talking about judgment and peace. Because once Jerusalem has been set up by God and this compact together structure has been set up among the people, then the second blessing that's mentioned here is that thrones are set up for judgment 
the thrones of the house of David, and then immediately in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the shalem of Yerushalem. See, in Hebrew, pray for the shalem of Yerushalem. Real obvious. You need to pray for the peace of the city, which is the city of peace. Well, yeah, you do. If you know the history of the city and how horrible it was, obviously they needed a lot of prayer. But what is the connection between peace and judgment? Well, it's our old friend, the law. Once God's law has been set up in the city, then true judgment can take place. And man does not find salvation by escaping away from God's law and escaping from God's justice into the arms of his mercy. As Ray has so often said, God's mercy bleeds through his justice. We don't have justice over here and mercy over here. And we don't say, Lord, please hold your justice and your judgments away. Please don't bring judgment to America. Oh, give us mercy instead. Well, we're not going to have mercy if we don't have judgment. When God draws near and judges, that's where you find the mercy. Now, that's orthodox, reformed theology. Anything which opposes mercy to justice is Anabaptist and Gnostic theology. But we are all used to thinking that way because it's human nature to shy away from God's justice, but not in the Bible. Always in the Bible you see, Lord, send your judgments, send your justice, bring your kingdom on the earth, kill us, strike us, but make us live. Remember that hymn that we sing that's in the liturgy by Chesterton. Bind all our lives together, smite us and save us all. Smite us and save us all. doesn't say hold back your justice. No, he prays that God would bring it. And there, because God's justice and his judgment has come and man's justice and judgment has been swept aside, that's why you can have peace. That's why you can have order and stability. The order and stability doesn't just come mystically out of the fact that everybody loves everybody else. It'd be nice if it did, but if everybody loved everybody else, you'd be falling into adultery and everything else. No, you need justice, you need the law, you need the structure brought down. And when the structure is there and men conform to that structure that God imposes from above, then you can have peace. Then society is compact together. All right? So we can move to the second half of the song. God's rule will give peace. Judgment, justice, law will bring peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then the prayer is heard here in verse 6. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls. And prosperity within your palaces. My goodness. I thought that true Christians would always be poor. But it says here that there are palaces in the city of Jerusalem. And the prayer is that prosperity would come to the palaces. Didn't think that you needed to pray for prosperity for palaces. I mean, if I had a palace, frankly, I'd figure that I pretty much had it made. And yet, God will heap blessing on blessing, it says here. And when peace comes and judgment has been set up, and the house of David, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne. Then the city is compact together, is organized. The people are organized spiritually. And there will be prosperity, not only to everybody, but everybody will have a palace, and there will be prosperity to the palaces, as well as peace within your walls. There's almost a tension there 
for people who are used to being in the world. It seems as if when people become prosperous, they become belligerent, or at least uncooperative, because they don't need anybody else. That's the danger in having money. Then you don't need anybody else. You don't need any favors. You don't need any friends. You've got it all to yourself. You can build your castle, and you don't need to cooperate with anybody else. You don't need to stick your wing out and touch the wing of the person next to you. And yet, there's no peace there. There's just each man having his palace and doing his own thing. And that's the tendency of wealth. And yet, what we have here is both prosperity and community. Both prosperity and community. How do you like that? And so, at the end of the psalm, he says two things. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And then the second thing, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Doesn't seem spiritual to put for the sake of the house of the Lord our God second after for the sake of my brothers and my friends. And yet maybe it's in climactic order rather than in didactic order. Maybe he's building up to this. But you'll notice that there's no contradiction between saying, my motivation is the prosperity of my Christian brothers and sisters. My motivation in praying for peace is for the good of my friends, my Christian friends. It's for their good, for the sake of my brothers and my friends. It's not unspiritual to want to see yourself and your friends to have prosperity and peace. And then as a second reason, not secondary, but surely even more foundational than the first, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I will seek the good of Jerusalem. Remember now, the house of God is not Jerusalem. It's located in Jerusalem. It's the tabernacle where the throne is. The city is the culture that grows out from the church. The city is the culture that grows out from the church. And every religion in the world has a culture that grows out from that religion. If you establish Mormonism in a place, you will have a city grow from that church. The culture will grow from the church. When God called Israel out of Egypt, what did he say? Come out of Egypt so that you can build me a theocracy. No. Come out of Egypt so that you can build me a city. No. Come out of Egypt so that you can worship me. Let my people go that they may serve me. That was it. That they may engage in formal public worship and a three-day worship festival. That's the only demand that was ever made on Pharaoh. Now, everything else flowed out from that. And so when you read in the book of Numbers, you read that when they set up camp, the tabernacle went in the middle, and then all the tribes were arranged around it. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the tabernacle of God is in the center, and each house has his own house and tabernacle all around it. Culture flows out from religion. And the house of God is in the middle of the city. Jerusalem is the city that has flowed out from true worship of the true God. And so we might say that by seeking the good of worship, that will flow out and provide good for our culture, and it will. And yet the reverse is also true here in verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek the good of Jerusalem. That is, taking care of the church in the wider context, taking care 
of the brothers and the friends taking care of the walls, taking care of the gates, who you let in and who you don't let in on certain occasions, the throne set for judgment, the politics, all of that is also for the good of the church. It's also for the good of the house of God. Let's read the whole psalm together now and put it all together. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. They're already in the city. And now somebody says, now that we're here, let's don't waste any time. Let's go over to the tabernacle. Our feet are already standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, all structured and organized by God, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of Yah, the one who is strong and who defends us. This is an ordinance in Israel. Three times a year we're supposed to go up as a witness to God, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They don't go for any other reason. First and foremost, they go to thank God for what he's done and for what he is. And what has he done? Well, because thrones have been set there for judgment. God has instituted his theocracy there in the land. And he has given his laws and he has given his judgment. And so we give thanks to him for that. The thrones of the house of David, the house of the Messiah. And now the exhortation to each other as they walk along. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Here's the prayer. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will always seek the good of Jerusalem. That's Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, To Yahweh's house let us go. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is being built like a city. She is compacted together. There ascend the tribes, the tribes of Yah, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to Yahweh's name. For there are set up thrones for judgment, thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your citadels. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I now say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of Yahweh our God, I will seek your good. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, age after age. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.